Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing app businesses. We sit down with the entrepreneurs, investors, and builders behind the most successful apps in the world to learn from their successes and failures. Subclub is brought to you by RevenueCat. Thousands of the world's best apps trust RevenueCat to power in-app purchases, manage customers, and grow revenue across iOS, Android, and the web. You can learn more at RevenueCat.com. Let's get into the show. My guest today is Daryl Stone, head of product and design at Citizen, the number one public safety app in the U.S. Daryl defined and scaled Citizen's consumer subscription product with a dual focus on acquisition and retentive life-saving features. On the podcast, I talk with Daryl about going from zero to an eight-figure ARR in just 18 months, building a product improvement loop combining user research, prototyping, and A-B testing, and why expecting failure is one of the keys to success. Hey, Daryl. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Long-time listener, second-time caller. I think the first time (laughs) Jake Moore was talking about paywalls for 30 minutes, and I didn't really want to stand in the way of that. Yeah, I know. So I invited you to be live on stage in New York City at App Promotion Summit. And then uh, Jake and I like dominated the whole conversation. <laughs> but the whatever, you know, two or three minutes you got to talk, I just had so many follow-up questions. So uh, thanks for, for agreeing to come on again so soon. Um, and so listeners who've listened to every episode will have heard your voice and, and gotten some of your insights. Uh, but there's so much more that you've learned at Citizen. Uh, we probably won't even cover half of it today. So I'll have to have you back on at some point. Um, but I did I did want to kick things off just to understand why you joined Citizen. So you were at Uber. That's an incredible company. grown tremendously over the past decade. And then you left to this small kind of subscription startup that yeah, didn't actually so monetize. <laughs> when I joined, we had no idea how we were going to monetize that citizen. That's a, that's a discussion I'm sure we'll drive, get a lot more into. But I think just for a quick background about myself, uh, I run product and design at Citizen now. I joined as PM1 uh, back in 2019. I'm our lo- longest tenured product uh, person at this point. Three and a half years at a startup is obviously a, you know, a long time where I've learned quite a bit. Um, I think why I joined is actually really indicative of why I've stayed and, and, you know, withstood a lot of the adversity or just different challenges you face as you scale up a startup. And, you know, I had an amazing time at Uber, worked with incredible people. I was there from 2014 to 2019, first kind of on the early Uber pool team, kind of getting that product off the ground, very much a zero to one to many kind of opportunity, uh, very mission driven. You know, we were lowering the price of transportation to make it more accessible to people. And uh, we, we took that pretty far. I started when it was in one city, got it to 30 cities, kind of was a core member of the product team and kind of on the leadership team there. And then, you know, there was a a pretty big cultural kind of shift at Uber and a lot of folks were looking around as to what to do next. This was like 2017, 2018. And I looked up and saw the driver app was kind of in serious need of some love and, you know, drivers around the world could really benefit from a better experience. And so I joined one of my close friends and mentors, Yuki Yamashita. Hey, Yuki, shout out to you if you're listening, uh, who's now chief product officer at Figma. And him and I kind of co-led with him as the lead, kind of a redesign of the driver app. And we we stripped it down to its basics. Um, We really thought deeply about the core experience and really making it great for drivers. We dug in on user needs. Uh, it was an amazing experience to build a product for someone that wasn't myself and really understand kind of what, what was important to drivers. And as part of that, 
Um, I took a team to Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, we did a research trip there. We had data science and engineering. We had like a mobile device lab. We were driving around Sao Paulo in a bulletproof device lab, like really studying the Android devices and how they worked in different network conditions. Um, and we also talked to drivers. We did user research. And when we were talking to drivers, uh, translated in Portuguese, you know, we wanted to know, how's this app we've been building? How, is it better? What, what's, what do you like about it? And they were like, yeah, 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 it's great. But, you know, we're getting robbed at knife point with the cash that we're collecting. Uh, you know, what are you doing about our safety? Uh, you know, wow. our cars are breaking down in favelas. Uh, what are you doing about our safety? And so I left that trip just like with their feedback kind of burned into my brain and realizing, you know, safety was a massive and really undersolved or unsolved opportunity. And I didn't feel like Uber was really in position A to solve it. It was more of like a social problem or challenge. Um, and so fast forward, you know, three or four months, uh, I had my second daughter, I have two kids, and I was looking around at other opportunities. Um, and I found Citizen. Um, they were in two cities. Uh, they had a relatively immature, but really, really strong kind of product in terms of the product market fit it had in places like New York. And I was instantly captivated by Andrew, the founder, and the vision he had for a global network of people uh, protecting each other. And I, I believed in kind of the idea of it. I believed mobile technology could be used to protect people and create safety. Um, and so I joined as PM1 to sort of build that out. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so why don't you tell us a, a little bit about Citizen the app? I don't know that all of our our uh, listeners will actually be familiar with what Citizen does and and how the app actually does help protect people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what you should know about Citizen first and foremost is it's a moderated uh, safety app. So, this isn't for for those who aren't familiar with it or who are only casually familiar with it, um, the way Citizen works is we actually send real-time emergency alerts of, of what first responders in your community are actively responding to. Um, and we do that because we have a team of analysts over 100 who are actually actively listening to police scanner, digitized police scanners in your community, listening for addresses and key pieces of information, and then providing instant real-time transparency um, as to what's going on. So when you hear sirens going by, um, you know, you can be aware and extra vigilant as a citizen as to sort of what's happening around you. Um, and that's our free product. It's, it's free in 30, 40 major cities now in the U.S. Um, and what's really powerful about that product or that application is it creates through this instant transparency, opportunities for citizens to stay safer, to exit burning buildings when there's a fire in their building, even when their alarms aren't working. We actually beat fire alarms in some places in New York or older apartments where they're failing. We have stories of people exiting buildings they didn't realize were on fire because of a notification they got on their phone. Wow. It helps you avoid active shooting situations or potentially dangerous situations where reports of weapons or actual observed weapons are kind of exposed around you. And people are using that information in real time to just make safer decisions for themselves and their family. And it also helps people. Um, you know, you, if your dog runs away or your child is missing or kidnapped, we have many cases where notifications sent to a broad community of people in, in near real time has resulted in the community coming to their aids and actually helping people and, and, and creating kind of real-time community safety. That's the free product uh, at its core. And it's it's become part of kind of the transportation or the, I should say, the safety infrastructure of the major cities that we operate in. I was going to say, and I shared this anecdote before, but it really was a fantastic experience. When, when we first met in New York City, of course, uh, you know, I live in a small town and, and even live in a, in, a, in a neighborhood that doesn't see much action. Um, so I had never downloaded the app. When I flew into New York, first thing I did was download the app. And sure enough, that first night, there were sirens outside my hotel and there was like some active 
thing going on right outside my hotel. And it, and when I heard all the sirens, you know, the first instinct is, oh, do I, you know, look out my window? Do I pop out and see what's going on? And, you know, I, I pulled up the Citizen app and it told me exactly what was going on. And it was clearly more safe for me to stay in the hotel room. <laughs> and so I didn't go out that night. And it was, it was genuinely a great experience for somebody, you know, coming from a small town and then like knowing kind of what to do in that situation. Yeah, it's a very unique product. And, you know, the, the free app has basically always grown virally since it's been introduced. And the real challenge and what I sort of stepped in to help solve is, so, you know, what is a paid offering on top of this really powerful uh, extremely valuable free app. Like, what does that look like? And uh, it's been a journey. Um, you know, we didn't know when I joined. Um, it took us some time, even through COVID, and we can talk more about that to figure out what it might look like. Um, but what we sort of landed on is, you know, you have these agents, hundreds of agents who are kind of moderating your community safety for free. Our paid app, Citizen Premium, effectively allows you to reach those same agents uh, to get real-time uh, safety support. Um, and, you know, it's really powerful when you open up that direct channel to, you know, a trusted third party like Citizen who's trained and incented to just keep you safe. Um, you know, what can happen? Um, it's a first of its kind kind of safety offering. Um, what's really powerful about it is it integrates all of your existing kind of emergency response. We can call 911 and send them to your location better than, you know, most mobile devices. If you call 911, what happens is the first minute is basically trying to figure out where you are. Um, with us, right. we can route responders to exactly where you are, which is incredibly powerful powerful. Um, but even bigger than that, you can text us. We have kind of silent capabilities that allow you to get instant second set of eyes of digital kind of witness or guardian, if you will. Um, and you can reach us before something escalates. There's this really interesting kind of artifact of the emergency response system where it's like, you don't call it unless it's an emergency or something. And we actually view preventative safety and the idea that you can proactively um, address when you feel uneasy and take an action that actually ensures your safety and navigates you to safety with um, you know, someone who's just instantly by your side, making sure you get home safely, making sure your Uber arrives on time, uh, making sure you can find your wits if you're in an unfamiliar area and just get somewhere where there's an open place to sort of catch your, catch your breath and really ensure you're safe. Um, we've seen that service as a subscription service, just have a really powerful type of product market fit and create a really powerful type of consumer experience. Most of us have never seen anywhere, which is like truly kind of like a rescue or a safety intervention where our subscribers' lives are dramatically different because they had the app on their phone and were able to reach us before something escalated or while something was escalating to get life-saving help. That's incredible. And, and it's great kind of context since I think a lot of our listeners will probably have just heard very, you know, just news headlines about Citizen not like actually experience the app or kind of understand the value prop. And so as we talk through Citizen strategy and Citizen monetization and all the things you're working on, kind of having that as a backdrop helps understand why things are built a certain way. And, and so with that in mind, I actually wanted to transition to talking about that, that transition to freemium um, where you did actually start charging because there's there's got to be a lot of tension between, you know, the, the kind of mission of keeping people more safe and then actually charging money to keep them more safe. And, and I'm sure that's kind of a daily tension of like, how do we actually help the most people we possibly can, but then also as a for-profit business actually make money helping them do that? Yeah. Um, and the way we think about it, 
uh, it's a great, it's a great tension. It's a great observation, but like the way we think about it is, uh, you know, the, the free product has basically transformed the way that the public alerting system works in the communities we operate in. Communities are fundamentally different with sort of citizen creating real time transparency and helping people make better and more informed decisions in a micro kind of on a micro basis in certain communities, you know, where there is sort of the threat of uh, violence or even just where there's a safety like kind of event in progress. Um, so that's already been sort of transformational. And we kind of think about our premium offering, uh, Citizen Premium, as almost the next phase of the company where we transition from simply making sure you're aware of what is of what's going on and can kind of make better decisions with that information to actively participating kind of in your safety directly and ensuring you have access to the best possible type of help that's ever been created, which we really believe is being built on Citizen, aggregating existing response types and having sort of a citizen agent who's highly trained in the middle of it with all of the powers of kind of mobile technology at your fingertips. And it just turns out to build something like that actually requires sort of a transactional model. You can't give that away for free. It it starts to stop making sense. And a lot of us joined, you know, for the mission of safety and, um, what we've realized is you start by basically ensuring a group of people have access to something that's better for their safety than anything else that exists. And then as a phase two, almost, you democratize that access, find ways to do give one, get ones, find different partnerships or avenues that give people access to this incredible kind of transformative safety product we're building. Um, but you do so in a way that's perpetuates the existence of your company because, you know, that's how you sort of yeah. perpetuate safety uh, indefinitely and, and not sort of devolve into a not-for-profit or something that actually would probably pretty quickly lose steam. And so, you know, what we're chasing and kind of what we've been building is, I think, one of the few examples of kind of a free product with a direct network effect that's kind of viral in nature with social sharing and content kind of distributing through communities in real time, but having sort of a monetization engine attached to that that actually amplifies the quality of the free offering. Um, it's a little bit of a different type of business to scale than I think some of the other subscriptions you've had on your platform where you know they they effectively have already know kind of day one okay we'll hook this in this is our monetization engine we'll drive traffic from these channels we aren't really operating that way we've actually been a lot more i would say discovery based almost in how we've kind of found this model and and figured out how to monetize this free product in a way that's uh, ensures a level of, of safety for free but obviously advanced protection if you if you're able to uh subscribe yeah, and it's it's interesting because we've we've talked before about how you know you really are kind of building the ultimate freemium model and you, you have the the financing and the team in place to to go after this. For a lot of smaller apps, freemium can be really tricky because the the more value you give away, are you really actually going to convert those subscribers over time? Or are you just like, you know, uh, just giving giving it away and looking at stats some some uh, developer friends shared on Twitter you know, something like 92% of anyone who ever subscribes, subscribes within that first day. Um, but I think Citizen is, is in a really different place that like, as you continue to add, you, you kind of, you benefit and get value out of there being more people on the platform and you further the mission of giving that value away for free. And then over time, there is opportunity to, you know, when, when something uh, happens in a community when something happens at an individual level uh, to actually kind of build on that free offering over time to actually monetize more and more of your customers over time. Uh, so I think it, you know it, 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 it's an incredible example of how freemium can work incredibly well. 
um, and that there is an opportunity to monetize after you've built a huge uh, um, freemium base. Yeah, and it's a really important observation you made, which is our product actually has a network effect in that it's better when your neighbors are on it and when people in your community are also participating. People can add video to incidents. They can comment and provide helpful tips or pieces of real-time awareness in a very local way. These are people who are, because of our usage of location, you know, within a few blocks of you who have the right, right. level of con context to kind of be able to help you in kind of a real-time situation. And, you know, we're at the beginning of kind of deepening sort of the premium offerings connection to the the free product and uh, in many ways unlocking what we believe is an incredible opportunity, which is more kind of active participation in community safety. Um, an example of this we haven't shared that, you know, I'll, I'll share with you is, you know, we ran a test in Soho, New York, where we simply sent a notification that said citizen user needs EpiPen. And within 30 seconds, you know, we had notified thousand people. We had five people in comments saying, I have an EpiPen. Um, where should I go? How can I help? Um, and, you know, we aren't rushing to productionize this quite yet, um, but we believe yeah. the the nearby network and kind of the connection of the community to safety um, is almost like the ultimate marketplace opportunity in that, you know, if you can index the skills and capabilities in a trusted way of people in your community and put them in a position where they can help in a supplemental way to the existing emergency response system, but in a very meaningful one, if you think about medical cases where, you know, seconds matter, um, that's the opportunity that we sort of see ahead of us. And we're really the only show in town in terms of really focusing on personal and community safety and having all of the pieces in place to build something of transformational and life-saving value for communities. Now that's, that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us motivated. And um, we're really kind of, when you zoom out day zero in terms of what the opportunity is and what we've been building. Yeah. And then, you know, another amazing thing that, the subscription model and actually having your users become customers and, and pay via subscription is that you're not incentivized to do a lot of the creepy things that some, that a company in your position might actually do. So we were talking kind of chatting before we hit record about how you don't sell location data. And I think a lot, you know, a lot of people would expect that just given, you know, how a lot of social networks and even weather apps and other apps have gotten a bad rap for doing that. But by actually charging your users, you're, you're incentivized to not do that because it's a better experience for a customer knowing that their private data and their most sensitive data isn't being shared. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if I could give, you know, a word of advice to your to folks in your audience who might be evaluating different opportunities and kind of trying to figure out what do they want to do with their career, I would say, more than anything, more than, you know, what's published and the cultural values or whatever, look at how a company's business model works really, really closely because how a company makes their money will dictate their actual kind of mode of operating and their actual kind of cultural values. And I think, you know, the ad-based um, sell data for, you know, different types of access model creates a lot of perverse incentives for consumers and does, I think, erode, you know, trust and privacy and really perhaps even safety if you if you zoom out far enough. Um, and it's really important to, to us at Citizen that, you know, we monetize in a very transparent way with a very clear value exchange from our users and the services being rendered. Um, and that's why we don't sell data and we never plan to and, and never intend to. Yeah, that's amazing. And speaking of plans, uh, you're sharing a little bit about, so taking Citizen Global is going to be a huge challenge, but also a very, I imagine, exciting challenge internal. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Citizen at a global scale. 
Yeah. So I think I mentioned this to you before the podcast, you know, we have an initiative underway right now. We're calling Citizen Global. And I I think part of the journey we've been on as a company is really moving from sort of an inspired proof of concept and one of the, you know, best MVPs almost ever released. Kind of, if you look back at how, how it grew virally in New York and then other places, you know, thanks to our founders, incredible vision and product sense, Andrew's an amazing product thinker and an operator, but really graduating that to a mature business with a, a path to scale. And that's been the journey we've kind of been on for the past few years and obviously uh, solving monetization or figuring out our monetization story and being to to make extreme uh, traction has been a core part of that journey. And as we kind of appraise where we're at and, you know, we're starting to bring in better advisors and just really kind of connect the narrative of our free and paid products together, uh, we're realizing, you know, we actually have a pretty compelling story for how this goes global, how this kind of helps the driver, the the Uber drivers in Sao Paulo. And the way that we sort of view the, the, the core product scaling is actually, you know, we're a moderated safety marketplace um, powered by consumer subscriptions where we'll index the local types of help in your communities, um, you know, the, the different emergency response networks and perhaps volunteer organizations organizations and groups who are already helping on the ground and would help in more ways if they had better better access to information and who needs help um, and powering that through, you know, a subscription product that sort of functions the way Citizen does today, where, you know, incidents are created, the community is alerted, help is sort of happening on those incidents and through those incidents in some cases where first response and private members of the community can coordinate and work together uh, to create safety. And, you know, we believe that that will be the product we bring to London, to Sao Paulo, to these different places around the world um, and sort of launch, if you will, something much closer to like a a safety uh, marketplace almost with with a a high focus on moderation and a high focus on preventative safety, like before things escalate because of this like deep connection between the community and the helpers and the responders um, functionally operating as kind of a deterrent. And so that's what we're building out right now. We're kind of actively reorienting our entire product around um, our consumer subscription. It's it's a little bit disconnected if you if you use the current version, but you know we're we're sprinting across a set of milestones uh, with Sean Rad from Tinder, who's been sort of a very involved advisor, who's become a, a really uh, trusted thought partner of me and loves the product and the direction of it. Um, and that's sort of you know what we're building out right now. And you know Sean cares. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he's excited because you know he's seen sort of the Israeli-Palestine conflict and these these yeah. real kind of intense safety situations where there's just an obvious opportunity for a better layer of consumer software to create safety and transparency by better digitizing and democratizing information. And that's that's sort of exactly what we're building here. And we're kind of the only show in town, as I've said, which makes this you know <laughs> a pretty exciting opportunity when you look at it from the right aperture. You may, you may not have gotten this far, so feel free to punt if, uh, if you don't have a, a coherent answer yet or kind of still in investigation phases. But uh, you know, th- something I get asked a lot is, is how do you price globally? So for a, a lot of subscription apps, the U.S. ends up making up a vast majority of the revenue. And then, of course, then you hit some of the bigger countries like, you know, uh, UK and Germany and Japan are typically in the top, you know, eight countries for monetization on a subscription app. Um, but when you talk about moving into sub, uh, to Brazil and to other countries like that, have, have y'all started researching the opportunity there financially and like how the pricing will be different, how the cost will be different? Is that, is that something actively uh, being worked on? We're still very early in how the service will look and localize. Um, yeah, I think I can speak more to almost the 
philosophical side of it or kind of what's in our toolkit. You know, I think we'll obviously do, I think conjoint surveys and kind of willingness to pay surveys are a pretty solid foundational, um, you know, tool. If you're not familiar with them, I would encourage, you know, folks that are listening to look those up. Um, also, I think, you know, rapid and iterative testing is a huge element of kind of developing sort of a, a strong sense of what solid ground is versus what's speculative. And um, something I push my teams to do and really I push our company to do is kind of tie break with with data and with testing as much as possible. Um, you know, you may have noticed uh, I said citizen premium, but if you Google, you'll see there's actually like a lot of uh, citizen protect is kind of what we call our subscription currently. And the reason we're, you know, we're kind of rebranding in part is we did some paywall testing and found that citizen premium um, on top of Superwall was actually converting and retaining a little bit better. And we thought it actually was a more clarifying way of describing the product. And, um, you know, we make our decisions kind of with the, with a blend of intuition and data and uh, that's just an example of that that I think would apply to our uh, kind of global go-to-market, if you will. And speaking of that, you you recently hired a user full-time user research person with an assistant, which I, I you know I mean at your scale, um, you know that's that's more feasible than for a lot of smaller subscription apps. But I think a lot of even the smaller subscription apps probably rely a little too heavily just on that quantifiable data and doing A-B tests and, and those kind of things. But tell me about this, this user research role and how it shapes even how you perform and evaluate A-B tests and then how you also incorporate that kind of intuitive understanding of the user into the decision making and kind of product development. Yeah, I would say we've done two things uh, this year that have materially improved our product development process. The first was, as you said, hiring a user researcher. The second was actually activating kind of a prototyping uh, engineer. We kind of converted one of our really talented animators to a prototyping engineer. And those two kind of working in concert are just have been an incredible unlock for us as a company. And I don't know how familiar folks are with user research, um, but I would say the benefit of user research is it just gives a much more systematic and thorough voice to your customer base or your potential customer base because you have someone owning that as kind of like a dedicated discipline versus sort of this thing you do on an ad hoc ba- basis when you're looking to validate uh, or potentially sort of confirmation bias, you know, something that you think is a good idea. And for us, right. where we have a lot of internal conviction, we have people who have been building for years and really kind of believe, have deeply held viewpoints on what probably will work. It's actually been a really helpful tiebreak to to um, activate sort of a more independent, uh, you know, voice of the customer throughout our process. And that manifests in uh, surveys, in research interviews to just build kind of a foundational understanding of our customer base. A big initiative we, we did earlier this year was identify the seven core needs that, you know, we believe Citizen uh, needs to meet in order to really kind of achieve sort of a, a global safety position. And those, those key needs and meeting them is part of our language for developing and then where that really collides is, you know, we put together higher fidelity prototypes of things that we think uh, are, are worth building. And before we just, you know, sprint to, to push something to production, we actually show them to users and demystify some of the things that you would, you know, learn months later when you ship something right. and find out, oh man, turns out they didn't press that button or turns out everyone didn't get that screen. Um, and that feedback loop has created a, a much more rapid and iterative approach to our development, which is starting to really improve our hit rate on kind of newer products where there is, you know, inherently a margin of error to uh, building and releasing them. And how has that changed A-B testing? So, so you're prototyping and you kind of have a general understanding maybe of how things are going to hit in production. Do you still roll those 
prototyped and kind of validated experiences out into the production app as an A-B test? Or do you kind of roll them out with a level of conviction that you wouldn't otherwise have without having done the process? We definitely still A-B test. I mean, I think there's a version of like the product Hippocratic Oath, you know, first do no harm <laughs> that I've that I've sort of long ad- adhered to. Um, no matter how well you think something is built or conceived, um, you always want to roll out and first do no harm and kind of build off of a base that's, you know, solid and established while while you continue to iterate. Um, and what, what I really push my teams towards is, you know, I call it milestones, not cliffs, where we don't want to overbuild something and release it with no follow-on plan. We want to release it kind of early in that first, you know, harm phase, have plans for progressive enhancements and take the time to invest past the starting line to progressively enhance something to the point where it can achieve kind of a, a metric goal. Um, I think less mature product companies will, you know, assume that this first release solves all problems and quickly find out that a bad first release can create far more problems than it solves if you're not really uh, thorough in in terms of how you roll, roll it out, how you learn from the ecosystem you've just destabilized or the, cost, the user experience you've just kind of just destabilized. And uh, we design and, and build and release with that very much in mind. So then what is that, what does that loop look like? So user research identifies a, a customer need, prototyper, prototypes an experience. That goes out to real users of the app in coordination with the user researcher to actually look at those things. And then that rolls out as an A-B test. And then you're looking at the actual production response. And then that data feeds back to both the researcher and the product team like, I mean, I'm kind of pulling it all together based on what you yeah, said. Yeah, that's, that's actually more or less how it works. Yeah. And I think a key question for startup product leaders is really like, how much can you parallelize? Because um, you nice. don't want to have too many, you don't have too many steps that are like matrixed and dependent so that you're basically like lines down on, you know, a core function like engineering who could be making progress on foundational components that are quote unquote locked, even while you're validating sort of like the things on the margin. I'm curious in describing that process, it kind of reminded me of, of something you shared uh, when we were talking about potential topics for the, for the podcast is uh, that one of the top things you recommend uh, to, to product folks is to listen to Annie Duke on The Knowledge Project. And I actually love her book, um, Thinking in Bets. Uh, and so I, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on, on how that thinking inspires the way you approach product development and why you recommend it to anybody working on the product team. So the name of that podcast, I think it's like the best name of a podcast I've heard is actually getting better at being wrong. And I share that because when you're developing new products and when you're working in kind of earlier stage consumer uh, environments, you're just inevitably going to be wrong um, a portion of the time. There's too many decisions. There's too many things that you have like you that are just gotchas in the, in the course of building something new. And it's as important when you're leading a team through that process, that they understand sort of the true kind of nature of the game and that there isn't an expectation of a hundred percent hit rate or getting everything right moment one, but rather that we have such a shared long-term viewpoint of what we're building together that we can withstand any specific sort of bumps or bruises along the way and really building kind of anti-fragileness and and resilience into your process. And what Annie Duke talks about is really structuring everything basically as a bet. 
And I think when you when you liberate yourself from being right and acknowledge there's an uncertainty underlying what you're doing, it's a bet, you can start to think about the expected value of that bet and how to sort of tweak the effort to impact ratio or trade-off to get the same expected value for less effort, which is a great way to sort of de-risk that bet or to get way more expected value with a little more effort, which is a great way to sort of structure that bet or that thing. And when you talk about everything in terms like that and acknowledge the uncertainty, and it's incredibly powerful when you're talking to engineers or designers or even executives, um, when you use words like, you know, we believe this to be the best path because, or, you know, we think this is going to work because of these things, but, and um, acknowledge sort of the implicit uncertainty, you just create a lot more of an intellectually honest environment for development. You create instant kind of psychological safety and trust throughout your team. Um, Because when you've been at a startup for years, you've seen, you know, the metrics that have moved a ton and the ones that have stayed kind of flat. And at a certain point, it becomes dishonest if everything is going to be the next big thing that wins big. But it's much more important that everyone shares the, the same language for how they talk about what they're doing. And they all understand what it will feel like or look like when you do win big. And, you know, that's sort of, I think, the what I coach my team on, that like getting better at being wrong and how you sort of lead teams to become anti-fragile um, and to ship things that have a really believable chance to change the game and win, um, but doing so in a way that creates long-term cultural continuity. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> I imagine over the last 18 months getting citizens revenue engine off the ground, you were wrong a lot. And so I, I'm curious if there's any specific lessons you could share from that experience of both things you got wrong and things you feel like you got right over the last uh, year or 18 months. And, uh, you know, it's no, no small accomplishment to have gone from, from zero and a completely free product to now uh, eight figures in ARR. It's an incredible accomplishment in such a short amount of time. Uh, so I imagine y'all have have talked about things and learned lessons uh, and, and made mistakes that a lot of folks would benefit from 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 hearing some of that experience. Absolutely, and I think maybe I'd start by giving sharing almost the the tips that I think have really helped us be right more than we've been wrong. And I can through that I think it'll be clear where we sort of what was sort of an unlock for us or a real value add. The first tip I would give is kind of uh, really focusing on your top of funnel and kind of what is driving your growth engine or your feedback loops. Um, Because it's really important you understand kind of the psychology of the people who are entering your kind of core core app experience. Um, You know, what types of content have they been shared? What ads did they see if you're doing paid? We didn't do paid for a very long time. And just sort of like, you know, who are they? And kind of like, what what, what is their kind of makeup and mentality? That's by far, I think, one of the most important things to to really focus on. Um, Then, you know, once you've kind of got a clear understanding of what's driving that loop and ideally some way of consistently driving it um, because you need a flow of people to even know how to operate on and scale your product. Um, and you know that starts with like the seed idea, which is a core product that is valuable and does is marketable or does kind of grow itself. Um, the next kind of core thing to really focus on is um, you know that really that first session um, to perhaps seven day journey, but first session matters almost 10x as much as I think for seven days in terms of really um, having a specific moment, which is your onboarding experience, where there's a shared understanding from the user and the developer or the team that this is onboarding. You can communicate differently in that moment. You can present things in that moment that you really don't want them to miss and ensure they have the right level of context and inspiration to kind of take the plunge with you and try this new thing they've maybe never heard of um, or don't deeply or fully understand the value of yet. 
that is sort of your golden moment to really tell your story well and iterating on that experience, running tests on that experience that move, you know, a metric surprisingly up with a position that really resonates. Um, You know, we've seen video has been incredibly helpful for us for paywalls because our product requires a little bit of like visual description. Um, You know, this this idea of an agent who's with you and can walk you home or who you can text anywhere all the time with whatever you might be concerned about. That's a concept that's a little bit new, you know, it isn't like a different mattress or something. Um, and so really kind of understanding the psychology and that first kind of onboarding moment and building your onboarding very modularly. So you can, in a very lightweight way, test and iterate on it without sort of waiting a month for your feedback loop. Um, that is an incredibly important kind of engine to sort of like get off the ground in the early days. I mean, we'll talk about tooling soon, but Superwall, the the paywall kind of uh, A-B testing tool that Jake Moore, who was on your podcast, um, is the founder of, was an incredible unlock for us because we could iterate so much faster on a very core part of our value presentation. The third tip I would say, and this is kind of related to the second, is, you know, have a really strong understanding of buy versus build. Um, I think in the early days, we, we sort of probably overbuilt, if you will, some of the key components. You know, we in-housed some things that there was a tool for. We we could have used off the shelf. And I think what we didn't realize in making that trade-off of buy versus build was you get a lot more than just the tool when you buy. You get sort of industry experience and perspectives of people who are now rooting for you. Um, you also reduce your long-term maintenance costs and get the ability for more of your team to be focused on value versus maintenance, which if you're a startup, you want everyone doing value and almost no one doing maintenance unless they're maintaining the value. Um, and so those were that was a key, I think, realization for us was, you know, um, in some cases, swapping things we already built that kind of worked for things that we knew would work for the next five or 10 years as we increased the complexity um, was a huge unlock for us. And, you know, Revenue Cat was great because we could integrate Stripe easier and stand up web in a day versus a month. And it'll be great when we go international because, well, decomplexify a lot of these things that if we had been working in-house would become, you know, a whole team we'd have to staff versus like a few lines of code we push or even configure within a module or a a set of toggles. Um, So I would say those three things, understand your top of funnel and what drives it, uh, really hone in on that first kind of session to seven day journey, and then really understand buy versus build and make sure you have the right stuff in place uh, to operate effectively um, would be my top three things that I would really recommend. Yeah, you so and you've already kind of mentioned a couple of them, but what what would you say are those top unlocks you've seen as far as buy versus build and bringing on third party um, tooling to help achieve that? I know, and we we've talked about this before how there is sometimes a little bit of uh, internal engineering stigma around relying on third parties and like having third party SDKs in the app and things like that. So yeah, how, how do you, how have you approached that build to buy, build versus buy, and then and then what specific tools do you feel like have been the biggest unlocks for you? The best way to facilitate a build versus buy conversation is to show powerfully all the things you want to build that are on the roadmap but not yet built. Because <laughs> if you have a lot of those, um, then you know when are these going to be built is kind of the question. There's this implicit tension to you know basically time box these discussions around, you know, building versus buying. Um, so that was a big thing for us is as we've kind of really enhanced the roadmap and had a really clear and compelling vision for where we're going and what we're building, every line of code that isn't sort of driving that is like scrutinized. And, and that I think really helps us as a company understand, hey, you know what, 
this isn't going to be a strategic technology for us, that there's off-the-shelf tools that work right out of the gate. Um, this is probably worth it when we think about the value this same group of people can, can create focused on the things that are core to our competency, like personal safety and, and um, community safety. Um, and so that's been really helpful. And then, yeah, you know, I think to the extent that I mean, you can bring in tools like Revenue Cat. I think what a big unlock for us was as we had multi-channel and really even multi-platform, Apple and Android have different ways of defining the same metrics. It becomes a huge data engineering kind of hodgepodge of uh, you know complexity to manage as to like the definitions and how they work and how they operate. Integrating a set of industry standard definitions and allowing that to scale multi-platform, including web. Um, it's just a really big unlock and decomplexifier for something that's very hard to in-house, given how complicated uh, the various platforms have made sort of subscription management. Um, and so that, I think, has been a really big unlock for us and added a lot of organizational clarity um, and reduced the thrash of, like, do we trust this metric or what have you? Um, the other one I kind of already mentioned was Superwall. I mean, Superwall and really modularizing our entire onboarding, which we did build in-house. There's an incredible SaaS <laughs> opportunity to just modularize onboardings and do what Superwall is doing for paywalls for onboardings. Someday someone will start that and do very well. Um, that was a huge unlock for us because it allowed us to move really quickly and kind of um, iterate on our highest kind of metric, one of our highest metric moving surfaces in a very contained way um, that you just yeah. can't really do across your more mature user base. Um, and Superwall was very core to that. The ability to push completely different paywalls or value props without writing really a line of code is a huge unlock. Um, and, you know, testing pricing and different things on top of that system um, is just so much more leveraged and precise than it would be in a system in a world where you're building all of your paywalls natively. And then I think you also mentioned uh, Branch is something you, you rely on pretty heavily. Yeah. So, you know, we grow uh, from content uh, sharing and really to a lesser extent invitations. Um, and then obviously word of mouth, people talking about it, screenshotting, et cetera. And, and, you know, one of the primary ways we do attribution for that is actually through branch links. And so um, if you're setting up, you know, uh, your kind of growth flows or your share flows, uh, highly recommend branch as a way of really simplifying attribution, but also giving you a lot of really helpful customization, thumbnails, et cetera, sharing thumbnails, et cetera, that allow you to kind of really optimize something that seems almost like myopic in a way that's, you know, almost myopic in the short term. But, you know, when you zoom out and realize how these gains compound is an essential part of kind of accelerating your growth and your network effect. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. And, you know, this is something you mentioned a, a little bit when we were talking with Jake in New York. Um, but when you're working on on some of this minutia, when you're creating these deep links, when you're doing yet another A/B test, keeping the team aligned on how all these little things kind of feed into the bigger mission can be a huge management challenge. Uh, so tell me a little bit more about how you kind of approach keeping the team aligned. Uh, even through the boring stuff, even through the annoying stuff, even through the like 100th A-B test? So it starts, I think, with clear goals and a culture of celebrating wins and creating kind of rapid feedback loops. And so for us, you know, we have goals that will necessitate a level of grinding it out, sort of tactical experimentation. Otherwise, you know, we won't meet them. Maybe that's an acquisition goal or a seven-day activation goal or something. And so having a sharp kind of goal-oriented uh, mindset and culture really helps. And then celebrating incremental progress helps a ton. Um, 
I think other things that I've seen really work and really help are bringing in advisors or people who um, can evangelize even better than you can, you know, why these things really work. Shout out to Nikita Beer, very respected growth advisor who's kind of helping us actively right now rework some share flows and things. And um, you bring in folks like that to create kind of added momentum and also ensure you get even better best practices. Um, And if you can't bring in advisors like that, the third thing I would say is really become a student of the game. And understand, uh, you know, what's working, what people are doing across industry. The top app charts are incredible because they're literally just a scoreboard of who's kind of winning. And all right. of their apps are available. And you can kind of download them. You can screenshot them. You can understand smart things that they do. Um, and you can put them in a Figma. We have a huge kind of library of just like different kind of teardowns of how different folks are, are kind of what flows look like for inspiration, for context, for clarification. Um, and that instantly sort of raises the bar for us because if we don't sort of map to something that we've seen win in industry, well, then the question is like, what are, what are we inventing or why, is, like, why isn't this good enough yet? So those are a couple of things that I've seen really, really work for that. And I also think balancing teams across, you know, grinding it out and also kind of building, quote unquote, more of the core value um, is important as well as kind of more of a stabilizing thing over time. Yeah, something you mentioned, celebrating wins. Is there a specific uh, citizen way that the product engineering, in engineering celebrate a win? Yeah. So, you know, when we when we have an experimental write-up that shows green, uh, we send an email to our company. Um, you know, we have kind of a culture of really retroing uh, wins and losses, but definitely wins a little bit more, more excitedly. And then that becomes part of, you know, the culture of just understanding the feedback loop of what's working and winning. And often that'll result in someone suggesting an idea that that, that win inspires or kind of a next thing to focus on. And, you know, we have an all hands every two weeks, which is another kind of pedestal for that. And uh, yeah, we take celebrating wins really seriously. I mean, product is very much, and consumer tech is very much a team sport. And if you kind of, you have to approach it kind of through the mindset, you're like building a team that's going to win a thing. Um, And it's very different than, you know, building a feature that's going to achieve a blah or something. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and speaking of teams, uh, we need to wrap up. And I did want to share that uh, Citizen is hiring. Are there any specific roles you wanted to shout out or anything else you wanted to share as we wrap up? Yeah, uh, we're looking for uh, product managers and product designers. Please, if you're listening to this and have a passion for consumer monetization and also are inspired by the the opportunity for community safety and personal safety that we're building here, reach out. You can find me on LinkedIn, find me on Twitter, we would love to talk. Awesome. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. This was a fascinating conversation and uh, good luck with everything. Thanks so much, David. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review in your favorite podcast player. You can also stop by chat.subclub.com to join our private community.